investing is a game of meta analysis, right? It, it, you, you have to know what matters isn't how, you know, your understanding of a company, but how your understanding compares to the market's understanding. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. On today's episode of the Investing City podcast, we had the pleasure of talking with Dan Rasmussen. Dan is the founding partner of Verdad Capital, and he's had quite an illustrious career, even though he is pretty young. So Dan got his undergrad at Harvard, and then he actually wrote a book called American Uprising about the largest slave revolution in America. Afterward, he worked for Bain Capital as a consultant, where he had an idea that private equity wasn't the best asset class. After that, he got his graduate degree at Stanford, and then he opened Verdad Capital. The thesis for Verdad Capital is that private equity, when invested at high valuations, isn't a good asset class, but rather you can replicate that strategy on a microcap scale with the public markets. As you'll be able to tell in this podcast, Dan is an avid reader and thinker. I won't say too much, so let's just dive in. Enjoy this episode with Dan Rasmussen. I wanted to start off with something that is not directly related to investing because just doing a little background research on you, and I find it really interesting that you're actually a New York Times bestselling author on slave revolution. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? I wrote a book. It was actually my senior thesis. It was my junior paper and then my senior thesis. And then uh, after college, when I was working at Bain Capital, I actually spent nights and weekends uh, turning my, my thesis into the, into a book called uh, American Uprising, the Untold Story of America's Largest Slave Revolt, which uh, you can buy on Amazon. And I highly recommend doing so. Get a good plug in for the book. Um, but the, the, the story was fascinating. It's, it's the, uh, the largest slave revolt in American history, somewhere between 200 and 500 slaves uh, to the north and uh, west of New Orleans, uh, rose up in 1811. They marched towards the city. They were flying flags, beating drums. They, you know, had uniforms, uh, and their goal was to sort of create a Haitian Revolution-style event in the United States. Uh, they failed. Uh, the revolution was brutally suppressed, um, and the uh, story was largely written out of history. And what I did to uncover it was actually a lot of uh, data and analytical work. So I actually built a database of every slave that had participated in the result re revolt, you know, where they came from, what we knew about them from each individual source. And then I mapped those, uh, that database onto old land maps that I've, I found uh, from, from around that time. Uh, and then I actually used Google Maps to say, okay, well, if we knew that these five people uh, came from this plantation and this event happened at 11 a.m. according to this uh, letter, you know, how, you know, what time must they have left this plantation if, if they were walking along the river road to get from place to place for transcripts and property records, uh, a, a story about uh, a revolt and then turned it into, you know, a, a more narrative form uh, once I was able to, you know, figure out exactly who and, and what and where uh, and, and when everything had happened. Fascinating. So how did you actually come across this story and decide to actually make a kind of a huge project out of it? 
Yeah, so I, I, I got very interested in studying the, the history of the American South. Um, uh, that was my, my focus in, in college. Um, you know, uh, Solzhenitsyn said that uh, the, the line between good and evil goes through every human heart. And I think slavery is one of those ways in which the line between good and evil goes through the heart of this country. Um, and I think the studying slavery and the South provides almost a more interesting picture of American history um, than um, sometimes some of the more, you know, northern focused narratives, which which don't grapple in quite the same way with uh, sin and defeat uh, and these other really powerful um, emotions and human elements that are uh, de define the history of the South. And so that was what I, I wanted to study. And you know, I read a huge amount uh, in college, um, and it was actually uh, there. There was a wave, uh, still ongoing, of, of of sort of Marxist histories of the United States. And one of the Marxists, this guy uh, Herbert Aptheker, in the 1940s, uh, decided that he would try to document every uh, every slave insurrection that had ever happened uh, in the United States as sort of a uh, example of Marxist class consciousness among uh, the slaves. So. Uh, you know, he he actually documented this revolt in 1943, and then you know basically nobody had really written anything about it because the only records were these sort of uh, you know court records and property records and things like that. And nobody could make head or tail of them, and and it was boring. And so you know it it was really a great project for me because it was very clearly a very significant event. It was the largest revolt in American history, but it was um, not really. Uh, There's no book about it. I think the longest article was like 15 pages. Um, so it was really an untapped uh, area of study and, and really just an interesting uh, interesting niche within uh, American history to uh, explore. And did you find that some of those same research processes and findings have really kind of translated into your investment process? Uh, you know, maybe by, by, by uh, you know, in some ways, perhaps they must have, uh, but uh, hopefully there aren't too many, uh, you know, intersections between studying plantation slavery and small cap equities. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think there's, they're a world apart, but, but I think, I think that investing is a game of meta-analysis, right? It, it, you, you have to know what matters isn't how, you know, your understanding of a company but how your understanding compares to the market's understanding. And I think um, history trains you really well to be a meta analyst because you have to say not, um, okay, here's, you know, what happened, but, you, you know, why does this matter? Um, and to try to find events that maybe haven't been written about or where the people that have written about it have gotten, gotten it wrong. Uh, and I think that in that sense, I think the sort of detective work of a historian uh, and the storytelling work and the ability to sort of say, here are the gaps in our knowledge or, or here are the gaps in other people's understanding of an issue, uh, that is really at the heart of what makes, I think, good investing, right? You, you, you have to find a different story or a story that's misunderstood uh, and uh, a place where, um, you know, you can really contribute and be an expert. Um, and you have to sort of in that have a, have a great, have sort of uh, acknowledge that, um, you know, it, it would be really hard as a 22-year-old to write a good history of the Civil War because there have been so many histories of the Civil War. 
Um, but a slave revolt in 1811 in New Orleans, you know, no one else had written about that. It was uncovered. So, you know, gee, you know, maybe that's a good place to cut your teeth. Uh, and I think investing similar. And I think in small and micro cap stocks, you know, it, it's sort of like that. You know, hey, how many people cover Microsoft? You know, there was some story the other day of like Microsoft's uh, stealth rise. It's like it's not stealthy. It's like the third largest stock in the market. You know, I, I don't know how you get, you know, an edge on Microsoft stock. Uh, although I do use Excel a lot, so maybe I have an edge. But um, but I think in a smaller micro cap stock that isn't covered, where most of the big players don't play, uh, you know, there's much more opportunity to come to a, a, a unique perspective uh, and 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 I think generate alpha. That's fascinating. So I want to touch on something you said about digging into history and maybe cross-referencing something to figure out somebody had the wrong view of history. So I think there could be some parallels to investing. So I'm just interested if you have an example where you were looking through maybe a bunch of documents and somebody had something wrong in history, maybe it was a historian, just had a slightly off view. People see the world through a specific lens, right? They have an ideology. They might not know what their ideology is or or where it came from, but it defines the way they see the world. Uh, And so if you look at, for example, the history of slavery, uh, you had multiple sort of waves, right? During the time of slavery, people were only interested in the slave, writing about the slaves. You you either had the, because the slaves themselves were either illiterate, if they were literate, you know, they, they weren't getting their stuff published unless they were able to escape to the north. So, you know, by and large, you don't have, we don't have many records of what the slaves themselves thought or did. What you have is the planters' records, right? And they exclusively think, write about their slaves as though they're, uh, you know, cows or something, right? Here's how they're healthy or sick or they cause trouble or they don't, right? And then you have, on the other hand, the northern abolitionists who are writing about slaves with a very specific agenda, right? Which is to overcome slavery and show how evil it is. Uh, and then you have... Um, sort of after the Civil War, um, you have two schools of historiography, right? You have this sort of uh, Northern Whig school, which is continue- basically relying exclusively on the abolitionist documents. Uh, and then you have another school, which is essentially the Southern uh, the Southern historians, Ulrich Bonnell Phillips and others who are saying, you know, the South was this beautiful lost cause. It was a wonderful uh, plantation community. The slaves were part of the family. Um, and uh, and they were uh, you know, blatantly white supremacist in their in their viewpoints. Uh, and then in the 40s, you had Marxism. In the 30s and 40s, you had Marxism arise in the U.S. And so you had a bunch of people trained in Russia, or um, you know, funded by the Communist Party International, or uh, et cetera, it, you know, who were writing very, very explicitly communist-oriented. Uh, accounts of slavery in which the slaves had no more agency than they had in any previous accounts, but uh, in, in this case were cast as sort of um, you know Marxist class revolutionaries. Um, and I think all of those uh, histories were wrong in their own ways. Um, and I think the better way to write history is just to write about not about slaves, but about individual people who happen to be enslaved. And gee, what were their lives like? And what do they think? And what do we know about them? Um, and 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 my view is that that's a better approach. But just like in investing, you know, every wave of historians has their own biases. They have a thesis they're trying to prove, and that's why they're telling you a given story uh, to to prove out their their thesis or to illustrate it with facts. That's true in investing as it is in history. Totally, there's that confirmation bias of people kind of have an idea or a thesis, and then they gather all these facts to kind of support that. Before getting into Verdad Capital and your investment process, I want to talk a little bit about kind of what you were up to before that, after writing the book. So 
tell us about your experience at Bain Capital and how that provided a foundation for what you're doing now. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a great segue. You know, I think um, the people I worked with at Bain Capital, many of them I'm very close friends with today and have, you know, huge respect for, um, are some of the smartest uh, people that, 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 that I know. Um, but Bain Capital, like any other investment firm, has a philosophy. It has a, a view of what a good, what you know, what is, how do you, how do you make a good investment? You know, what's a good investment? And I think, you know, for 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 Bain Capital, you know, they, they would they're they're looking for high quality businesses um, uh, where you know if you look at LBO model, the math works. So um, some combination of the growth being enough to justify the purchase price and being able to bear debt combined with a sense of a business quality. Uh, and then I think, you know, they would layer on a sense of, you know, could we improve it operationally, right? And that's sort of their template for what they look for. And I don't think they would necessarily say, define it uh, necessarily so simply, but that would be my observation about Bain. And, and I think that's broadly held. I think there are a lot of uh, investors who are, are, are more quality and growth oriented, That right? They say they want to buy good companies that have Good industries with good, you know, gaining market share, where you know all the boxes are checked, and and I think that that is, you know, philosophy that then you go and marshal evidence for, right? How do you how do you know if a company is a good company? You know, what is a good company? Well, you know, let's find let's marshal evidence uh, that this is a good company. Maybe it, it, customers love it. Maybe it's got really high market share. Uh, you, you know, maybe it just works better than other products, etc. Uh, and that was sort of the intellectual project at, at Bain. Um, and I think, again, that's a very widespread philosophy. I don't think that's necessarily unique to them. And, you know, um, and, and, and I think, you know, during my time at Bain, I, I came to question uh, that ideology. Um, uh, you know, I, I came to have a different view. Um, maybe mine is right. Maybe theirs is, is right. But uh, my, my view is that investments, uh, I read Kahneman and Tversky and Tetlock. And I came to the view that investments should be based on base rates. They should be based on on on, on evidence, uh, and that your investment philosophy should be like an actuary at an insurance company, right? Like you should sit there and think, okay, if I want to forecast this man's life expectancy, I ask, how old is he? Does he smoke? You know, uh, how often does he drive a car? You know, is he employed? Is he married? And then I I, I look at those numbers and, and match it to an actuarial table and say, okay, my life expectancy is seventy five, rather than saying you know, I'm going to assess how healthy he is by employing, you know, seven McKinsey analysts for a million bucks for six months and doing like a deep dive and interviewing everybody he knows uh, and coming up with a 40 slide PowerPoint deck uh, to understand him really, really well. Um, I, I think that uh, 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 my view is that actuarial based forecasts, investing is ultimately about making forecasts, uh, forecasts about price prices, uh, you know, is the price of this asset going to go up or go down? Um, and that those forecasts are better done through actuarial tools um, than through idiosyncratic analysis of individual situations, uh, no matter how brilliant the people that are analyzing those individual situations are. And I think once I started to do that, um, I uh, and think that way, I started to say, okay, well, what are what are the sort of actuarial table type uh, factors or predictors of equity returns? Um, and I discovered this magnificent li literature, you know, the, uh, the Fama and French school, you know, Wes Gray's work, O'Shaughnessy's work, you know, all the these great uh, minds, uh, you know, who who had documented empirically what worked and, and didn't work. Um, and then I started to think, OK, well, what about this ideology, ideology that I see at Bain about good companies and growth and industry growth and 
Um, and I started to study that too. You know, where did that come from? Uh, you know, what? It, where? Why do people? Where do people come up with the idea of wide moats or that market share matters? Or you know, why do people think that growth rates are forecastable or important? Um, and I spent a lot of time, you know, delving into the history of these ideas and trying to understand the ideologies that motivated them and then to compare test those empirically to say okay do good companies uh, have higher returns do high growth companies have higher returns uh, do companies with great CEOs have better returns uh, at trying uh, to uh, not just understand these ideologies and their histories but also test them uh, and validate them or falsify them as it were so I think it'd be really interesting if you could talk a little bit more about these histories, and maybe through the lens of a particular paper that you wrote on Michael Porter and how his competitive strategy might not be the great holy grail that everyone thinks it is. So can you just talk about those histories and overlay it with uh, that paper? Yeah. So, so, you know, Harvard Business School has wrestled with intellectual uh, legitimacy since it was founded. You know, Harvard Harvard is a snobby place, and I think a lot of the people in the other departments said, you know, how are you going to teach business? You know, like, I, I think there was some old joke about, like, are you going to have butchers and cobblers and, you know, like, sh shopkeepers and grocers? And, and, and you know, this was in the, when it was founded, right? Uh, and there was sort of a, a snide, you know, how can you teach those things? Why do they need a school? Uh, and so, and I think, you know, to some extent, okay, well, well what is Harvard Business School going to teach? And uh, and, and when it came to sort of business analysis or strategy, which is probably sort of the most erudite or intellectual of, of things one could possibly study about business, um, in the 70s, you know, in 60s, they were literally teaching SWOT analysis, you know, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and you'd, you'd create a two by two, and then you'd write the strengths and one thing, the weaknesses, right? And, and I think, you know, Michael Porter came along in the early 80s and, and sort of took a look at this and said, you know, this is ridiculous, right? Like, uh, you, you know, like literally this is like Harvard and, and we're, we're putting a, a SWOT analysis, right? I mean, and this is like so unrigorous and, you know, silly in some ways, Um and Porter had had studied under this, uh, uh, had done his dissertation um, studying the school of structure conduct performance theory. And structure conduct performance theory said that industry structure uh, determines firm conduct, and then that translates to firm performance. That was a, a, a big school of thought among sort of industrial organization analysts in the 70s. They broadly thought, you know, if you, if you take lots of complicated theories, but at its heart, it was a theory about power and industries. So they said, Within an industry, the most powerful firm has these advantages, right? It has barriers to entry. It can put pressure on its suppliers. It can bully out its competitors. So what you really want to know about a company is, you know, what's its market share within its industry, right? And, and this relates a lot to antitrust thinking and monopolies, right? So, uh, the, you know, if you think, well, if a company has a total monopoly, they should be able to charge whatever they, they want and, and, and thus dominate an industry and they should earn very high returns. Uh, and therefore, you know, if that's the ideal of a business, you know, the closer you get to a monopoly, the more powerful you should be. And therefore, the goal of strategy rather than the silly SWOT analysis should be to understand industry structure, since industry structure is going to determine firm conduct and firm performance, right? If you're a low market share player, you compete differently than if you're the incumbent with a lot of power. Maybe there's an irony to the fact that Harvard so thoroughly embraced the idea of an advantaged, uh, you know, established incumbency dominating everything and uh, ruling the world and, and that all you needed to do was understand power in order to understand companies. 
you know, and so, you know, Porter led this revolution to say, okay, we're going to teach strategy this way through the lens of structured conduct performance theory. He made that into sort of a simple template, you know, the five forces, um, but at the heart of the five forces is, is, is power, right? What company has the highest market share and thus has the most, uh, you know, the most force in the five forces, uh, as it were. Um, and, you know, it's a really compelling theory. It makes a lot of sense, right? Com- monopolies should earn higher returns. They should have higher margins. You know, the more market share you have, the better you should should be. Industries should, you know, if you understand an industry, you should understand how a company behaves. Uh, and so, you, you know, understand industry structure to learn companies. Um, all that sounds really good. It sounds really intellectual. The only problem with it is that it's wrong. There's just no evidence for it. It's interesting that over the past 20 or 30 years, you know, even within the field of industrial organization, they've completely thrown out structure conduct performance. They've completely thrown out this idea that market share has any relationship to margins and that margins have any relationship to stock prices. Uh, and basically all of those theories have been thrown into the rubbish bin because they're all empirically wrong. In fact, even the very idea that industries matter has been thrown into the rubbish bin. You know, nobody in industrial industries matter anymore because there's no predictive power to industries. It's just a, a sort of a interesting variable, but it has no statistical significance. So so industry structure just definitionally, just empirically, it just doesn't matter. There's no evidence for it. Uh, and this was actually the a point made by a lot of the Chicago school theorists in the 70s, um, who also won in sort of the legal court. So the Supreme Court looked at this and they said, you know what, um, all this stuff is rubbish. You know, it, it, market share doesn't matter. All that matters is is consumer harm and, and a different antitrust ideology, uh, but invalidated everything that Porter's Five Forces was built on. And yet, despite you know, sort of the a complete abandonment of structure conduct performance theory as early as the 80s by the Supreme Court, by economists in the 70s, the Chicago School just blowing this idea up, and then industrial organization theorists in the 80s and 90s, you know, saying, okay, this is rubbish and doesn't validate. Um, this became this uber theory among value investors, right? Warren Buffett helped popularize it as this wide moat idea. It was all the people that had gone to HBS, which was, by the way, like all the private equity guys who had gone to HBS. And then they got to business school. Uh, they got into their private equity job and said, hey, let's use five forces analysis or some bastardized version or just look at market share uh, to determine which companies are good companies to buy and hold versus, you know, which ones we shouldn't. Uh, and so you had this dramatic rise of this very popular theory um, without any empirical foundation and, in fact, without most of the investing practitioners realizing that they were applying a theory that was wildly controversial, if not, you know, the controversy had been settled in favor of it being rubbish, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier um, in every field with any academic rigor. Uh, and that was, I think, the heart of my piece about Porter and competitive strategy. Yeah, really fascinating history. And so I think that's a good segue into what you're doing with Verdad Capital right now. So can you just talk a little bit about your investment process? Yeah. So so factor investors and evidence-based investors broadly, like the sort of ur text of all this is Fama French's work. Uh, uh, on the three-factor model, which basically said small value is great, okay, right? Like, so, so, so let's take out all the academic garbage. They're like, buy small companies that are trading at low multiples. That was the essence of it, okay? Um, and that's like the foundation of factor investing. And everything since has been an improvement upon that. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants. But um, broadly within uh, that school, right, I, what, what I do is a subsegment of small value. Um, and I argue that private equity 
um, is a subsegment was a sorry it was a subsegment of small value. So if you look prior to 2006, and, and I'll get to why 2006 is so important, but prior to 2006, the average private equity deal was 200 million of market cap, 65% net debt to enterprise value, and seven times EBITDA. Now, if you think about how that compares to the broader public markets, right? 200 million is a micro cap. So, so you know, think of the size factor, right? And think of like the first decile of the public equity markets. Like we're talking extremes of small size. Um, now, uh, second value, like seven times EBITDA again is probably in the cheapest decile or two deciles of the public equity market. So we're talking about like extreme value, right? And then third, private equity firms are using debt to finance the purchases, right? So they're levering up those really, really small, really, really cheap companies. And they were putting, you know, two thirds of the uh, uh, purchase price to finance debt, right? And then, um, uh, you know, should that have worked? Well, according to Fama and French, right, small value is great. Well, if you lever small value up, uh, you know, two thirds, uh, you know, debt to enterprise value, gee, you know, you should get the small value premium on steroids, as, as Robert Bishney uh, says, uh, small value on steroids. Um, and, and that was true, right? From, from 1980 to 2006, uh, private equity was earning these crazy returns, crazy. I think over 80% of private equity funds raised prior to 06 beat the public equity market. And, and it's very logical that they should have, because what they were doing is completely in line with what the academics say works, right? They were buying small, cheap companies, and they were using debt to juice the returns. And it worked, and it worked fantastically. It was perhaps the best idea in investing in the last 30 years. Right. What's happened since 06? Now, what the Fama French research also tells you is the worst performing asset class is small growth. So if you pay a very high price for a small company, you're likely to be disappointed um, because the growth rates are going to disappoint you. They're not going to live up to those expectations. And small companies are more fragile than big companies. They go bankrupt at higher rates. Uh, they uh, run into problems uh, at higher rates. They tend to be less diversified uh, geographically by customer, et cetera. They're, they're more fragile in every way. Uh, and so if you pay a big price for these small companies, you know, it doesn't end well. You know, you get burned. And that's been a very consistent finding um, in the academic research. That's, by the way, why venture capital is the worst asset class. You know, it, it's just a, a total disaster for investors and has been for three decades. Uh, and that's because venture capital is small growth, uh, you know, uh, an extreme of small growth. Um, but what's happened with private equity is that pre-06, they were buying small value stocks with leverage. And then... Starting really in 06, it became in vogue, in vogue for institutional investors to allocate to private equity. So private equity was an alternative. It was something that was unusual for large investors to do uh, pre-06. And then starting really in 05, 06, uh, private equity becomes something that everybody has to do. It becomes an asset class that you as an institutional allocator have to own. You, you fast forward to 2018, 2019, right? Not only do they have to do it. Um, but they believe it is the sine qua non. It, it is what defines an institution. An institutional investor is an investor that invests in private equity. Private equity is the key core engine of the endowment model. Uh, and as that transition occurred, money dumped into private equity. The money uh, fundraising went from $100 billion a year to $300 billion a year, roughly. And purchase prices went from seven times on average up to where they are today, which is over 11 times. Um, so private equity went from levered small value to levered small growth. And we know small growth is bad. Well, gee, because these small companies are fragile and growth disappoints. Well, gee, you put leverage on them. And now you've got a set of uh, really fragile companies become even more fragile by virtue of having six or seven times net debt to EBITDA 
uh, of debt on them, which is way more than any company, or not any company, way more than most companies can handle, especially if they're running into sort of any sort of turbulence. Uh, and 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 so my view is that um, it, it it's 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 as an, an investor, you know, probably the seminal issue of our time, right, is the uh, impending, looming disaster when these institutions realize that they've deployed hundreds of billions of dollars into levered small cap growth, uh, you know, micro cap, uh, you know, 11 times EBITDA, six times net debt to EBITDA transactions at the peak of the cycle, locked up their capital for 10 years, and holy smokes, they're paying two and 20 for it. Um, and when they discover um, how disappointing uh, that uh, seemingly brilliant in vogue idea, uh, you know, how that turns out, I think that's probably the seminal uh, issue of our time. And and I think, you know, relative to that, what we do at Vertad is a minuscule topic. Um, uh, but what we do is we just say, well, gee, if buying things at less than seven times EBITDA with greater than 50% leverage uh, in the small cap world was a good idea, and 80% of funds that ever have done it um, in the private equity world, you know, beat the market, you know, why don't we just copy what's worked, right? Like, let's just copy it. Let's just do exactly what they did. Let's just go buy small cap companies that are levered 50 or 60% um, that trade at less than seven times EBITDA that have free cash yields in the 20s, basically a small value on steroids. Um, and all the empirical work that we've done suggests that the gross returns of doing that look pretty similar to the gross returns of private equity over the 1980 to 06 period. Um, which is logical. It's factors, uh, and uh, and and there's a lot of complexity to how we do that, and uh, and how to optimize the returns in that universe and the pros and cons of it. But at its heart, what what I believe is really simple, which is that private equity today is a huge problem. Um, it it's really dangerous. Uh, people don't understand the risk. Uh, everybody believes in it. Um, they're pouring money into it, and and it's going to end in tears. Um, and you know, people should be doing better things with their money. Um, uh, and, and, you know, what we do again is a very, very minuscule, uh, little gnat on the world of asset management. But, uh, but, but, you know, broadly we think the realm of the right answer is the small value world, uh, you know, which is where we think, you know, the best returns are, uh, lie in public markets. So I'm curious, is, was there a, an event in 2006 that really led to all this money starting to pour into private equity? So, um, well, I think it's a few things. So the returns have been really good. So from 1980 to 2006, private equity beats the public equity market by 6% per year net of fees. So everybody was looking at that data and they were saying, um, holy smokes, this is a great idea. Now, people in 06 had a few other really good ideas, okay? So so they had a few other really good ideas. Their other really good ideas were emerging market stocks and commodities, okay? So um, and now, and you can think of Harvard and Yale as sort of the two, uh, the two um, uh, models for this. So in 2006, Yale is going like 30, 40% of their portfolio in private equity. Um, and in 2006, um, uh, Harvard is going like 20, 30 percent of their portfolio into commodities and emerging market stocks, right? So they're both placing their bets on the in vogue ideas of 2006. You fast forward a decade, and what happened is that um, emerging markets, uh, which had some of the same characteristics of private equity, they were an in vogue asset class, money was pouring in, um, money poured out, and it didn't come back in. And emerging market stocks did horribly for the next decade. And commodities, which were an even worse idea because you weren't even getting an equity or risk premium, right? You were just buying assets 
right? Those were a real disaster. We're talking like 70, 80% declines in value um, post 06 um, as this commodity super cycle ended. And so Harvard's endowment, you know, huge disaster, you know, used to be on par with Yale in terms of prestige. Now nobody says, oh, the Harvard model, right? I mean, uh, that, that's been a, a, an unmitigated disaster for over a decade. Um, and everybody talks about the Yale model, which is the bet that worked out. And the bet that worked out, you know, why did private equity work out? Well, private equity worked out because in 08, uh, uh, when the public markets went down 50% peak to trough, private equity said, well, well our portfolios didn't go down 50%. They only went down 30%. And you and I, Ryan, might say, well, you own levered microcaps. You know, how did levered microcaps go down less than the S&P 500? And the answer is, well, well, that's what our accountants said they did. You know, they're private. Um, and so you had, you know, post you know, post the financial crisis, every institution was being pitched private equity. And, and the private equity guys would say, look, you know, we have better returns. And when, oh, wait, in the financial crisis hit, you know, we, we had drawdowns or half what the public markets were down. Right. So, so, gee, you know, wouldn't you like to avoid the type of volatility you're seeing in public markets? These, you know, crazy, you know, 50% drawdowns and 20, you know, 20% up a quarter, 20% down. You know, why don't you just, you know, put it in private equity? It's going to be smoother. It's going to be a lot calmer. And, you know, best of all, it's going to beat the market, right? There's no, no, nothing with more evidence that it beats the market than private equity. You look at the pre 06 data, you know, very, very compelling. Uh, and, and and so you know that that it was really that dynamic which caused you know this massive boom in private equity fundraising uh, post uh, the financial crisis. So it started in 06. It was the Vogue asset class then, uh, as were emerging markets and commodities. You know, private equity is the winner, and private equity has remained the sort of in vogue asset class. Now, in terms of returns, you know, private equity only 40% of private equity funds raised since 06 have beaten the public markets. So it's not like from a returns perspective, it's been lights out great. It's been mediocre, um, but nobody's really noticed that. Um, uh, uh, nobody's really talking about that, with a few exceptions, a few, a few, a few people like or Oregon's public employee retirement uh, 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 fund, which is you know one of the top thinkers in this space. You know they're on it. There are other people that are on it, but for the most part, people are are are, are sort of blind to the downshift in returns, and they're not thinking about it. And and in fact, people are doubling, tripling their private equity allocations. You know, Calpers came out and says. You know, the answer to our, our pension fund problem is that we want we 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 want private equity and we want it now. I mean, I mean, this type of lunacy, absolute lunacy, uh, which is so characteristic of, of bubbles. So I'm really interested to hear if you've had people in maybe endowments or institutions reach out to you and say, should we kind of navigate the ship in a different direction? Or do you get a ton of backlash just because people are so kind of stuck in their ways so it's a mix I, I mean i think it's a mix you know on, on the one hand we've had people that have um have have uh, you know that have sold their entire private equity books to secondary funds um and gee i recommend that um if you have a lot of private equity stakes you can get a great price for them in the secondary market you can get close to nav if not nav or above nav on your private equity book you can just sell it just get out take your take your toys and go home you know leave the private equity you know it's the in vogue asset class just sell uh, and so you know we're blessed we feel very fortunate that we you know we've been able to turn some people away from private equity we've been able to get others to sell their portfolios to secondary firms we encourage more people to do that uh, we think that's probably the best answer uh, and then i'd say on the other end of the spectrum um, you have 
you know, a huge amount of people that are pushing private equity. And I'd say, you know, on one extreme, you have the consultants. So the consultants, um, you know, in their bag of tricks, right, they had hedge funds. Well, you know, really tough to pitch institutions on hedge funds, right? Because institutions say, well, you know, didn't Warren Buffett win that bet and haven't hedge funds returned something like treasuries over the past decade? And, you know, why would I want hedge funds? And, you know, so the consultants are like, okay, we agree. We, you know, set hedge funds aside, you know, maybe maybe a little 5% allocation, but set those aside. And then, you know, you're public long only. And, and then they'll say, well, there's all this research that passive is better than active in public equities. You know, do you have anything? that proves that it's not and they say ah well you know the intellectual case isn't that good you know maybe you should just take your beta as beta you know put it in vanguard you know morningstar can't choose mutual funds and neither can we right no, you know nobody's going to argue that uh that intensely and then they say ah private equity private equity right here is the holy grail right not only is it a great asset class not only is it difficult to access but there's really high dispersion so the top quartile private equity guys do really well, the bottom quartile do really badly, and we, the consultants, can help you choose the top quartile managers. I mean, it's just a layup sales pitch. So the consultants are the ones that are the most opposed to this message because they have the most rioting on the private equity bet. They are the biggest promoters of this because it perfectly aligns their institutional incentives. Um, and and you see, you know, some consultants putting out things saying you should have 40% of your portfolio in private equity, right? And and to which I'm saying, right, like if, if you went to someone and said 40%, forget that it's called private equity and just say, you know, 40% of your portfolio should be in levered micro caps that, where you're locked up for a decade, right? Like what person in their right mind would recommend that to, to somebody? I mean, it, it's just so crazy. Um, but because it's called private equity and because private equity had great returns pre-06, you know, it, it's the in vogue thing to market to uh, unsuspecting pension funds and endowments. I'd say then the next tier of people that really don't like these ideas um, are people that are, uh, you know, starting their careers in the endowment and foundation world and trying to build private equity portfolios, right? That they've, um, you know, building out a private equity portfolio is a really important resume item um, because private equity is the definitive asset class of the institutions. So a lot of people that are trying to rise to the ranks of the endowments and foundations, they want to have constructed a portfolio, private equity portfolio, put that on their resume, um, and they really hate these ideas, right, uh, uh, for, for obvious uh, career reasons. Um, and then I think there's probably a, a set of people in the middle that say, ah, you know, maybe, maybe there's some truth to it, but we can't market time. And so even if valuations are high, valuations are high in public markets. So, you know, uh, you know, we want to be diversified. We want some private equity exposure. We want some public equity exposure. You know, we're not going to do anything extreme. And that's probably the middle ground. And that's probably, you know, a, a fair, fair number of people. Uh, and then I think there are sort of the uh, uh, a few people on on the other extreme who, again, are, are sort of saying, well, gee, you know, maybe we should stay out of private equity. Uh, you know, let's sit this one out um, uh, or, or let's sell what we have. Um, and, and, and that's, I think, the, the right answer. Gotcha. So I want to talk a little bit about the Verdad capital investment process. So when you're at Bain and you're talking about the five forces and a lot of more qualitative aspects of analyzing a business. But now at Verdad, it seems like you guys are very quantitative focused. So can you tell us a little bit about how you think about the kind of push-pull between quantitative and qualitative research? Sure. So I think setting aside qualitative or quantitative, I believe in evidence. So I think investment strategies should be built on evidence. So Ryan, if you came to me and said, well, I think that... Um, 
tech companies are great and tech companies that have recurring revenues are really particularly great. Um, I would say, okay, Ryan, like, why don't we do a back test and let's categorize, let's look at every tech company, let's look at all of them that are recurring revenue and see if those things actually predicted returns. Let's understand the dispersion, right? Let's figure out if that's a good idea or a bad idea. And there's a, there's a qualitative thing in that, right? Tech, whether something's a tech company or not, is qualitative to some extent. Whether it has recurring revenue is a qualitative judgment. Um, but you can test that empirically, right? And I think it's the testing, it's the falsification that I think I really care about. Um, and, and I think that um, broadly, there are some things that we know about investing that quantitative evidence has revealed. You know, one of those, for example, is that small stock, small value stocks uh, tend to outperform. It's not necessarily because they're small, you know, and, and I'll concede that and I agree with that. Um, it's just because there are many more cheap small companies than there are cheap large companies. And so, uh, you, you know, you need size as an important um, uh, uh, descriptor of what works. Uh, and, you know, broadly, um, some measure of financial quality. So you don't want to buy things that are going to go bankrupt, right? Um, and you don't want to buy things that have tremendously negative sort of technicals, like hugely negative momentum, massively high short interest, right? You want to avoid those things, right? These are things that are just empirically true, right? I mean, you don't need to believe me. Uh, you can test it yourself and you'll discover these things. You can go on SSRN and you can find these things, right? They're very widely known, um, uh, easy to find, easy to prove. Um, maybe difficult to implement or, or challenging to market or whatever, but they're but they're from an investment perspective they work. And then I think on the other hand you've got this a lot of sort of can't um, uh, you know buy great companies, do deep diligence, uh, you know uh, look for growth, uh, uh, find great products and great CEOs. And and the problem with all that stuff is that it's non falsifiable. And when it has been falsified, it's it's been proven false. You know. Uh, there's just no, not a lot of evidence behind those pretty stories. Uh, if there were evidence, um, I would, I would, I might invest in that way. You know, I might, I might look for great companies run by great CEOs and great growing industries. But I think the um, sort of definitive finding of the quants, uh, and 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 I like the quantitative investment philosophy again because they're evidence based. And I, I'm a historian. I, I like studying history to see what what lessons we can learn. Uh, and you know, I think the big uh, lesson we learn is that um, those sort of qualitative descriptors tend to be applied to what's ever in vogue. So when people say a great company, they mean a company that's been doing really well recently or a great CEO, it's a CEO that's been doing really well recently, or a great industry, it's an industry that's been doing really well. Uh, and those things tend to be overpriced, they tend to mean revert. Uh, and so all of those more qualitative things tend to be code words or justifications for buying glamour stocks. They're just fancy words for glamour, fancy words for paying high prices. Um, that's all they are. They're just justifications. And those justifications lead to bad investment outcomes. Uh, and I think that's been a theme of a lot of my recent writing about um, uh, Porter, about CEOs, about growth rates. Right. Um, buying companies that everybody thinks are great, run by great people with great growth rates is a way to lose money. It's a silly idea. It's a bad strategy. Uh, and I think that uh, in contrast, you know, building your uh, investment philosophy on the rock of solid empirical evidence it, it is the way forward. Uh, and, and it's the right answer, because, you know, if you go out and market yourself and say, you know, I'm a genius and I understand industries and I know which companies are great and which companies are bad. And then you, and then you, you, you know, the market is uh, up five and you're down 10. You know, what do you tell your investors? It's like, oh, I, I wasn't a genius this year. You know, my ability to um, 
my, 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 my visionary prophetic ability to understand industries and business models failed. You know, uh, you do, do you sign up like Beto O'Rourke and go, you know, driving through the hinterlands to find yourself? I mean, versus, you know, the quants, you know, like look at uh, Wes Gray's work on, on, on how long certain factor strategies can underperform, but they, they're still good strategies, right? You, you can sort of understand, oh, gee, this won't work 100% of the time because it's a 60-40 bet and 60-40 is as good as you can get in markets. Um, and I think the quants, I think, have a much better um, a much better way of explaining things to clients, a much better way of investing. Um, and I think it's it's much better for everybody to go in with realistic expectations um, rather than uh, uh, the sort of unrealistic expectations I think can too often be set by the more qualitative or fundamental active investors. Yeah, really interesting. So three episodes ago, we had Jim O'Shaughnessy on and he was talking about quant investing and I asked him, what were the downsides of quant investing? And he, he basically said that the downsides is maybe it's not as interesting at cocktail parties. So I'd be interested to hear kind of your thoughts on maybe a possible downside because what you're talking about, evidence-based investing, it doesn't really seem like there is much of a downside because it's very logical. But I'd just be interested to hear maybe just the flip side. Yeah, well, Jim's a sort of hero of mine. I'm a huge admirer of him uh, and and his writing and research and OSAM and they're they're wonderful. Uh, and uh, and I think uh, for the record that that Jim is pretty interesting uh, a conversationalist. Uh, so uh, you know he reads very widely. Uh, he's very very funny. Uh, and uh, and uh, so maybe he's a quant investor in his his daytime. But I think maybe having interests outside of work uh, makes one a more interesting person than going to cocktail parties and talking about your greatest private equity deal ever, which is you know I think in my mind uh, the uh, mark of a bore. The downsides of quant investing. There there are a few. I, th- I think that um, I think the first downside of quantitative investing. Most good quantitative strategies are. A capacity constrained, almost by this is sort of a iron rule of markets. Quantitative investors need a large sample of stocks to select from and spread returns across. Uh, most stocks are small, and so most of the stocks that are scoring well in factor models are small, uh, usually very small. And so, if you want to construct really high octane factor portfolios, uh, you know you're going to want to construct something that is really loaded on the factors, which means something in the you know, 50 or 100 names, not 1,500 names. Um, and those 50 are going to be concentrated in the small microcap universe. And so you do the math on volumes and capacity, and all of a sudden you end up figuring out that most of the true alpha and quant strategies um, is, you know, a few hundred million uh, in market, you know, a few hundred million in capacity for a strategy. And so you find a lot of the quants, water it down you know they start selling gin they start selling the ninth and tenth decile of value and then they say oh no we're just going to tilt towards the ninth or tenth decile um, because otherwise we couldn't manage so much money Uh, and so i think if there's a downside to quant investing and look this is probably a downside to non-quant investing is that um, the good ideas um, the good ways to run money um, are not scalable uh, they just aren't. Um, and so I think being an honest and good uh, quantitative investor means also accepting a level of humility that you're probably 
you know, not going to be running a hundred billion dollars. Um, and if you are, you know, you're, you know, you're basically just a quasi indexer and you're not really generating much alpha, but if you want to be a quantitative investor that produces alpha, you know, you're going to have to be, uh, pretty humble about your um, inability to scale. We don't want to take up too much of your time. So we'll ask one last question. And we've been asking this question to most people as of late, but are there any personal habits that you do on a day-to-day basis that you think has attributed to your success? Whether, whether, whether anyone should be learning from my success or failure, I, 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 don't, I don't know that there are any great, great, great lessons, although I'm flattered that you'd think so. Um, uh, but I'd say, you know, if there's one thing that I, I think matters a lot to me, it's reading. Um, and I think I spend a lot of time reading. Um, I, I read widely. I read fiction. I read nonfiction. I read science writing. I read academic finance writing. Um, and I think there's uh, so much to learn out there on almost any topic conceivable. People that have you know distilled their entire lifetimes or careers in, into into books. Uh, and so you know, I'd say if there's one thing that that I think has benefited me hugely as an investor. Um, is simply that I'd often read things that other people hadn't read that happened to be really effect, you know, really, really important. Whether that's, you know, go read Jim O'Shaughnessy's What Works on Wall Street, and then the next time you have a conversation with someone and they say, well, I really like buying high margin companies. And you can say, well, you know, in chapter 11 of Jim's book, he finds that high margins are not predictive of equity returns. So, you know, did you read a different book or, you know, or are you just saying that, you know? Uh, and I think there's, uh, there's just so much to be learned from reading and I would, I would uh, highly recommend it. Although maybe podcasts are, are just as good, Ryan. <laughs> the plug for podcasts. So really appreciate your time, Dan. Learned a lot. So just thanks so much for being on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening. You can find more information at www.investingcity.org where you can sign up and subscribe for our email newsletter that goes out every Tuesday and Friday. And you can also follow us on basically every social media platform on the face of the earth. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us an iTunes review as it really helps us out. And with that, have a fantastic day.